Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Thea is away for a couple of weeks, no doubt experimenting with new foods and exuberant pronunciation of European words. But fear not, indie pop star, TLS shunner and former denizen of the North, Lucy Dallas, is here instead. Lucy, hello. Hello, as usual, I disagree with your um, so your presentation I, of yeah. me. Once I said quite a flattering description of Thea, and she was so startled, we always had to stop recording the yes, podcast. Yes, you said something nice about me once, yeah. and I was like, That's yeah, right. that one. We asked Thea, or I asked Thea her favourite food at the start of uh, uh, the show, in a particular category. Are you familiar with this format, because you listen to the podcast? Lucy? Well, of course. I won't, I, won't, I won't go down that route, because it might be bad for both of us if I do. Anyway, you're not a continental foodie. Well, so you say. Yeah. Are you willing to play the game, though? I'm willing to play the game. Favourite yeah. sandwich? I'm going to show you how much of a continental foodie I am. Are you going to say a croque monsieur? No, I'm going to tell you that my favourite sandwich from where you get it in Paris. Oh, my. Actually. Go on. Because <laughs> you lived in Paris, didn't you? So Muriel, you're, you're a bit Muriel, who is joining us later, she will know about this. Um, it's in the, the Marais, which is the, the Jewish area. And there's lots of Jewish delis and bakeries. And I think the one, I'm never very clear about the names, it's Florence Kahn, I think, is the one that I like. And actually, there's two really classic ones. And they used to be Finkelstein. And she used to be there. And I think they used to be married. And then they got divorced. So she, she, she you know, opened her own one a few next doors door, down. Oh no, it's not quite next door, yeah. but nearly. And they make the most amazing sandwich with basically a bit of everything that's from the counter yeah so it's a bit like a salt beef but with everything in it oh, it's just wondrous so if anyone's listening in france which is which is we have french listeners what's mm-hmm. it called you don't know uh i think it's florence Kahn, but they will know anyone that's anyone florence that's Kahn. been to the barrier will know that will will know that bit it's the, it's um it's very well known Lovely. The other thing I was going to say to you is we're recording this as the coronavirus crisis is now finally recognised by our government and will be true of everyone listening mm-hmm. around the world. I did a thing on Twitter, but I want to show you this because you recommended a book to me. Did I? Did you not? Um, Last time you were on, you recommended a book and it's become clear. So I've said the best plague books and I've asked people to say their best plague books. Best is a, is a funny word here, yeah, but I take your yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. La Peste. Camus. Yes, very, very good. Leviathan Wakes by James oh, S.A. Corey, which is, of course, a plague book. Of course it is. And you recommend it in our science fiction yes, special. And, and it's I've actually read it. very effective, isn't it? All the yeah. kind of bio-horror of it. And actually, I was thinking about it as this thing happened. There you go. Uh, the Corner That Held Them by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is a medieval uh, historical fiction. The Decameron, uh-huh. obviously Boccaccio. Yep. And A Distant Mirror, which is, one, which is a non-fiction history by a woman called Barbara Tuchman. And it's about the Black Death. Well, there you go. But there you go. But I want to say I did read that book that you recommended and it's in my top list of plague works. Excellent. Here's the bit where I encourage you to subscribe to the TLS. Uh, Use this special offer code to get on board, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. This is the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, we'll talk about how to write well. Irina Domicescu has had the unenviable task of reviewing a whole bunch of books about good writing without being too self-conscious about her own prose. Happily, she writes like an angel and can help us work out what sets apart the lovely stuff from the bad stuff. 
Speaking of writing well, what about the third book in the Cromwell trilogy by Hilary Mantel? Is it any good? Lucy's read it. I've read an extract plus the last two pages. Which I think is reprehensible behaviour, for the record. And Edmund Gordon has written the definitive review of it. He'll be in the studio and will speak to the mellifluous friend of the programme, Muriel Zagar, about the new movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire and the female gaze in cinema. In my house, we occasionally play a game where everyone tries to draw a painting we've picked out of the Thousand and One Paintings to See Before You Die book. I know the long winter evenings just fly by. Anyway, my daughter asked me why are there no famous female painters, which, if not strictly true, is a good question to which there's a lot of answers, most of which involve the patriarchy. This is a long way of introducing a new movie by Céline Siama, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is about a French painter called Marianne at the end of the 18th century, commissioned to do a portrait of a young Aristotle aristocratic woman so as to advertise her beauty in order to get her married. Miro Zaga has been to see it and has thoughts on how it reflects Siama's interest in a female and queer experience of love and self-knowledge. She's with us in the studio now. Miro, hello. Hello. Um, before we get into the film, what should we know about uh, Celine Siama? How, how big a noise is she? Uh, she's quite a, a big noise. It's perfectly okay, by the way, to see the film completely cold without having seen any of her previous work, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's not uninteresting to know that previously she made three films as a trilogy, as a, a, a coming-of-age trilogy, and these films are called Water Lilies, Tomboy and Girlhood, are the English titles, and they are all really urban stories, primarily, of, of young women or female children and the sort of fluidity of their romantic and sexual experience. And they're modern. Are they modern? And they're modern, of? exactly. So here, she's uh, taken a turn into costume drama. Yeah. Uh, because it's set in the 18th century. Although she would say, I think, she has said, in fact, that all drama is costume drama. And especially if you're concerned oh, that, with that's a very, the that's drag a very, of gender point. identity. It's a good point. Why? The same way that a lot of, that we're going to talk about later, a lot of uh, wonderful fiction is historical fiction. That's you right. It it's such an insouciant French thing to say, isn't it? I can imagine in French, all drama is costume drama, has but, a certain swagger to it. Of course yes. it will sound better. <laughs> of course. At the same time, though, the beginning of the film, we see uh, the character called Marianne, who's a painter, a female painter who paints portraits for high society people, is clambering up, up at the side of a cliff in her gown and petticoats and lugging her uh, canvases at the same time. And so we can see from the beginning that the, the way that women have to wear frocks is quite cumbersome, not perhaps the most, the most natural thing And is there wear. a French tradition of... I mean, because in, in England, if you say costume drama, English and American cinema, there's a kind of... It has to be very good to raise it above a sort of chocolate box mediocrity. It's a sort of it can be seen as a bit of a shorthand for sort of safe and nice, but ultimately not that invigorating. Is that is that a, a trick? The same in France. I think it's true in France as well. Where this uh, is different is that uh, Siama is a minimalist in her aesthetic, so she likes things pared down. So she was never going to be a Visconti sort of person who likes to have all the underwear exactly right in the drawers that we never open. You know, it's not like that. It's a stylized. It's it's very painterly. It looks like Chardin. It looks like Greuze. It looks like all these 18th century paintings. The colors are very beautiful, but the dialogue, which she, she also wrote the script. She's also a scriptwriter as well as a director. The dialogue is very spare. It doesn't have a lot of forsooth, privy sort of mm. mannerisms at all. It's really uh, pared down to the bone, I think. Very elegant, uh, but not a lot of historicist notes, you know. It's not trying to be, to give you the illusion of the 18th century. In fact, yeah. there's quite a lot of mm, somewhat anachronistic notes in it. Deliberately anachronistic, not accidentally. I think very deliberately. Uh, one would be the music. It's it's mostly a, si- a very silent film. It's slow and silent and deliberate. Silent where you can hear people breathing and painting. So it's, it's very sensuous, but it, there's not a lot of music. The music has to be earned. And it comes particularly at the end of the film, perhaps, without spoiling anything. There's an amazing sequence at the end where we get Vivaldi 
in its fullest expression. But there is also a central bit of the film with uh, a song, a chant, that um, there's a scene where this is set on an island and uh, the women of the island gather at night uh, periodically to chat and gossip and exchange tips and remedies and then suddenly they begin to uh, chant and, uh, and clap. And that piece of music was composed for the film by an electronic producer who made scores for her in the past for contemporary pieces. So it's not pastiche of 18th century yeah. music. It's mm. a very contemporary piece that was inspired by Ligeti. And everybody's going to notice that. Yeah. So it's an interesting sort of um, experiment where she's taken some modern concerns and has implanted them in an 18th century setting, but while showing you all the time that this is this is experimentation. Yes, she play. hasn't, because there's so many films like that. You have a bit of kind of fake handle and 10 million violins come along or the real handle, you know, whatever it is. It's something that is aping the sound, as it were, whereas this is very much not doing that. And what's the politics of this? Because this is about, you mentioned your, in your review, the female gaze, which is interesting because, as I said, there's a sort of the, the grand tradition of painting has been so often male in, in the Western canon. There are exceptions in Gentileschi. Men looking, women being looked at. Exactly. Yeah. What, does this, what does this say about that? Does it say anything? I think it says all kinds of interesting things about art and looking and film. So painting and also film. The a painter in this is female. Her uh, subject is also female. They end up falling in love with each other. Uh, so the erotic aspect of that gaze is, is certainly present in the story. But because all the people involved are women, and not just in the film, but also in the making of the film, female director, female yeah. director of photography, the artist Hélène Delmer, who painted the, the portraits that we see in the film, d did the drawings, yeah. is also a woman. So you've got, you know, uh, the director looking, the director of photography looking at this painter who is painting the paintings, the actress who plays the part of the painter is copying her movements. It's all. And, and then there's a lovely in the story, there is a lovely liberating round of gazes, ronde des regards, I think she would say, where the artist looks at the model, the model looks back at yeah. the artist. The, there is a servant in the house who also becomes someone who looks at and is looked at by the others and represented in a painting also. It's very refreshing. Which is kind of, I mean, it's idealised for the 18th century, but arguably it's idealised for, for now. now. Yeah. It is idealised <laughs> for now. Uh, it's very much needed. And does it, I mean, you, you, you draw a contrast, there's a film, Blue is the Warmest Colour. Yes, I don't know if you remember that I film. don't really remember. It made, it made perhaps more noise in France, perhaps in America, than it did here. I think it was uh, very well received. And it won the Oscar for Best Foreign Movie, I oh. think. Uh, and that has a same-sex female artist relationship. It but, does. But the, there's more of the male gaze in that. Well, it was at the time it was perceived as very progressive that the characters were same-sex and yeah. it was a queer story and uh, that there was a sex scene in it that was explicit that seemed really progressive. And then... Uh, some well, a little way down the line after the lionization of the film, the two leads, uh, Léa Seydoux, who is the new uh, Bond girl, has, was in the last uh, Bond girl movie. Uh, Bond, Bond girl movie. That's more, <laughs> that'd be more progressive, wouldn't it? That's very progressive. Yeah. She's, she's very good in that. One. She's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And then another actress called Adele uh, Exarchopoulos uh, came out to protest the way they were treated by the director and in particular the filming of the sex scene which I think How lasts about six minutes and took two weeks to film. You see the thing I remember yeah. about it is hearing about the filming of the sex scene because That's it became I, And I think it was quite that. a brutalising experience. But that so will change I, mean, I, I don't want to name drop but I'm going to. Go ahead. So I interviewed Maggie Gyllenhaal who is one of uh, she's so interesting but anyway she she's a when she does films now she's always the exec producer as well as the actor but she said she had a tv show which was about the new york porn industry in the 70s mm. so there was quite a lot of sex hardwired into the story and she said what they she insisted on them hiring an intimacy director or an mm. intimacy boss whose job it was to be a woman and to basically talk to all the parties primarily the women i assume and say this is what's going to happen how comfortable are you with this you know right up until the point even mid-filming where they could say, you know what, this is not what I wanted to do, and actually kind of restore consent to filmmaking, which is possibly not there all the time. It's not there all the time. Consent is crucial. Now, in this film, uh, there is sex, um, 
Some of the most erotic scenes in the film are uh, take place when the performers are fully clothed. There is some nudity, but it is very respectful. There are also a few turning points in the film where this young woman, the aristocrat who does not want to be painted to begin with and is resisting the transaction with the painter, looks back at her as if to, well, in order to express her consent. So it's it's a film that's all about that, mm. all about consenting by returning the gaze. Which is important in the context of French cinema at the moment because there is a crisis of conscience uh, going on. We've seen the, the César, which is the Oscars of the French movie industry. About a month ago, the judges all walked out. They said, because Roman Polanski, the child rapist, had a film out called Officer and a Spy. It was nominated for sort of 12, mm. 12 nominations and the judging panel walked out, but they had it anyway. They've had the, the ceremony, which mm. was last week, and he won for Best Director. And A, that itself has caused all sorts of criticism, but B, it's highlighted an issue of female representation in the French Academy and how women are treated in the French movie industry. Yes, several things, because it's it's a huge issue. Céline Sciamma is herself at the centre of this because uh, she is the French representative of the uh, 50-50 by 20 uh, group is trying to achieve parity in the film industry between uh, men and women. Is that, so in, all, is that b- all in front of the camera and behind it? Yes, yeah. in all in all aspects. Um, so she's the, her film is really at the heart of this, and the the actor who who walked out after the announcement of the uh, main award is Adèle Anel, who plays the model in in this in this film. There is obviously a sea change at play in France currently where people are re-examining their position not just specifically about cinema but also generally as a culture for a long long time the sexual appeal of very young women and men but primarily young women has been part of the fabric of a French culture and the way we think about sexuality and I don't think it's ever really been questioned so the Polanski affair is intersectional in that sense because uh, Roman Polanski committed a sexual offence which is obviously utterly reprehensible but he is also a really great director and maker of films and in France we love and respect cinema and I think the tradition in France of criticism has always been that certainly how I was raised, that you, you maintain a strict separation yeah. between the artist, their private life and their artistic And there is something ar- arguably critically laudable about that, because you're not judging Roman Polanski as man, you're judging him as... Uh, I think so, given, especially given that he is not particularly a cineast of the male gaze. He's not. You know, he, his output has been very diverse and it's never really been particularly about objectifying women, looking at them in a, in a creepy way. That's not really what he does. Having, so, Having said that, though, this film, um, which is about the Dreyfus affair, is apparently, we, I mean, it's not out yet, so we can't see it, is apparently also fairly transparently uh, somebody who is publicly wronged and the, the tide of opinion which goes against him. So in this film, it, he does seem to be... Saying he's he's he's, he's the equivalent of someone sort I mean, of anti semitism. Exa- not exactly, but if, you know, it's a very tricky thing. I, uh, I I'm not entirely sure what the right response is. I think a lot of us slightly older French people and French women, in particular, are caught there in a bit of an impasse. Because on the one hand, I uh, understand the anger of uh, those people who have um, been themselves victims of sexual aggression at what they see as the lionization of a... It is lionization, uh, yes. he's not best director. At the same time, though, there's an atmosphere of witch hunt and lynching which is not particularly edifying. I'm but not entirely sure. But a witch hunt and lynching implies injustice. Mm. And the one thing that Polanski has refused to, to allow is justice, because mm. he has escaped justice. True. Do, do you not feel that he's, because of the social media aspect of this and the hashtag culture and sort of reduction of this, that he's being made to carry the can for an entire generation but, but of men that, and women who colluded in this kind of exploitation but in the 70s? Feel, I would say, though, that of all the people who should carry that can, someone who is guilty of a, of a sexual offence against the 13-year-old, it's not unreasonable for him to carry the can. And I wonder whether there's a danger, we've done it a bit now, of eliding two separate issues here. One is the kind of immorality of Roman Polanski and the way he's kind of got away with it by, by hiding away in non-extradition countries. 
does that make him an, a, a, someone who you could ever allow into your academy or not? That seems to be one question. And you can make the purest argument that actually we're just judging art and art. You know, Caravaggio murdered someone. You know, you don't have to make a moral judgment about someone to, 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 to like their art. But the second issue, which seems to be a broader one, is about female representation in French cinema. And it feels to me that Polanski probably shouldn't carry the can in that respect there should be a broader question which maybe the Césars are dealing with which is leave aside Polanski is there an issue in in how women have been treated in in the industry there is I mean one example of this would be simply if going back to coming back to this particular film the way it was dismissed by say Les Cahiers du Cinéma which is a very male magazine uh, and they said it wasn't even worth watching why yeah, because it's a little too unconventional it's is it about too female? Women is, is, is the, together, is but the, at the same time, it doesn't really deliver the titillation that. That's funny because the, the one thing that the Cage Cinema used to be was very hip, and that's a, that's not a very hip response. Everyone <laughs> becomes eventually yeah, uh, uh, establishment. Yeah. Uh, you know, it happens over the years. So it, there's certainly an, a need to correct the imbalance and to perhaps re-educate the gaze, the way people write about women, the way people write about actresses. I have a feeling that it's beginning in France, that there is there is a very interesting sea change, so we'll have to watch what happens. They're a bit slow on it. Does that feel that the... the, the I mean, look, we, we live in a patriarchal society in Britain, there's one in America, but the sort of feeling is, if you had to compare things, which is always invidious, I suppose, France is slightly slower to, to change than other cultures. It's certainly very different. I mean, I've lived here for 20, 25 years, almost 30 years now, and um, so I'm... I've become very acclimatized to the way we look at things in this country, but I still remember the first 20 years of my life and how I used to feel about things, and I was a reasonably enlightened person then. But I, I, was, I, I had the same blind spots as everyone else. It's such a different culture. The differences run so, so deep that the representation of women in film is perhaps the tip of the iceberg, but there is so much more to look at. Well, listen, the great thing about the way you talk and the way you write, Muriel, as we get to talk about all those things as well as a, f a film in itself. That's <laughs> not, uh, and this is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Would you recommend seeing it? Absolutely. Great film. Wonderful. Very moving. Muriel Zaga, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The great American sports writer Red Smith once said that writing was easy as you simply sit down at the typewriter, open your veins and bleed. There's a nod to that sentiment on our front cover this week, but our opening pages bear witness to the fact that writing well is far more dangerous and difficult than that. Irina Dimitrescu has reviewed several books that all seek to provide guidance on beautiful composition, and all are caught in the same paradox. As she says, it's possible to conceive of rules of writing, but readers longing for something beyond mere information, verbal fireworks, the tremor of an authentic connection, a touch of quiet magic, will do well to find the rule breakers on the bookshop shelf. The novelist Elizabeth McCray 
McCracken put the same point this way. A writer's voice lives in his or her bad habits. The trick is to make them charming bad habits. Irina is full of advice on how to make your voice live on the page, including this one. Any essay could be improved by the addition of one specific phrase. In a world tormented by the spectre of thermonuclear holocaust. And that's true of podcasts too. In a world tormented by the spectre of thermonuclear holocaust, Irina joins us on the line now. Irina, hello. Hello. Uh, you better explain that. Where does that advice come from and do you take it seriously? <laughs> uh, my best friend in high school told me um, that her father learned that when he was growing up in, in India. <laughs> and we just thought this was fantastic uh, and made it sort of our, our formula, our catchphrase. And at one point in one of my essays in high school, I managed to work it in as well. And now into a TLS <laughs> review as well. Yeah, yeah. So the two, I love the fact that you found an old essay and you did manage to do it. Yeah. So I would imagine if we send you all these books on how to write well, was that pretty daunting to then have to write well about writing well? I worried about this a little bit because I thought the writing would have to be at least at a certain level. Well, thankfully it but, was. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it, the interesting thing is my own writing, I find, uh, depends a lot on what I'm reading. And in fact, I think the best way to write well is to read good writing. So the fact that the books were so well written made it much easier for me to enter a flow and have fun with the style. And do you think, so in lots of ways, these are kind of versions of rules about writing. Are you now a convert? Do you think you can read a, 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 some rules and that will help you improve your prose? I don't think they are about rules. Uh, some of the books were, and in a way, those were the slightly less interesting ones. Uh, for me, the books by Joe Moran and uh, Jane Allison were, were so interesting because they put away the rules. It was more about how to read a sentence, a story, a novel with a certain kind of sensitivity that would help you write better yourself. But you talk about rules in this in in this piece, and and you say, which I think I don't know if this is an American thing or not. Pupils are drilled in the basic shapes of arguments, such as the rule of three, the five paragraph essay, or à l'américaine, the hamburger essay. Yes. The main argument being the meat. The rule of three, I'm kind of familiar from rhetoric. That's a rhetorical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the five paragraph essay. I've not heard of that before. You mentioned. It. Is that a thing in American schooling? It's a huge thing, and I actually uh, quizzed my Facebook friends to find out if this was as much of a standard as I thought it was. In Canada and the U.S., uh, it's a standard of high school education, or even earlier. So you have your first bun is the introduction in which you present your thesis. Then you have three fillings, each each paragraph making a certain point and then your final bun is the conclusion that repeats the whole thing oh i see sorry so the hamburger essay is the five paragraph it's just that yeah. your hamburger yeah. it's like your lettuce and your burger and your sauce or something exactly I'm, i think you have to be of thinking before, of mcdonald's either. to make writing <laughs> yeah. fun yeah okay. and in america if, does that result in cause one of the things i'm very struck by actually in my own experience of schooling i learned almost everything about uh, rules and grammar from latin Yes. And in English, I was never taught anything. So I was never taught the rule of three, except when I was reading Latin poetry, I think. I was never taught this this structure at all. Is that a good or a bad thing? Because you could make the argument that if you learn rules, you can then break them because you've, you've had that grounding. When it comes to grammar, I'm actually pro-rules. Uh, I grew up in Canada, so I learned all of my formal grammar from French classes. Yeah. And I remember one high school well, English teacher trying to explain a concept to us, copula verbs, and not being able to. And when she started using French terms, we all understood. So I think there's a lot thrown away by throwing away grammatical teaching. You know, you just can't communicate as well if you don't have a certain structure of thought. But these books that you talk about, the Joe Moran, First You Write a Sentence, and Jane Allison, Meander, Spiral, Explode, they're really interested in that bit beyond the rules. Exactly. Have you read Elmore Leonard and George Orwell? They have rules about writing. You know, <laughs> Elmore Leonard was quite famous. They never open a book with weather, uh, which is good. But it ends, they both end with a kind of, which I think is possibly the point that Joe Moran makes. He, you know, Elmore Leonard said, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. And George Orwell says, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. Is it just an instinctive thing in the end? And do you think that what you can take from this is that some people just instinctively know how to write because of how they read? 
I think people who have read quite a bit, especially good writing, high quality writing from a number of different fields, have a sensitivity that's built into what sounds good on the page and what doesn't, where it might be useful to break a rule and where one ought to edit to kind of bring things into, into line with a standard prose. Do you think there is a danger as well? Sometimes we, we, maybe we used to see this a bit more in, in reviews that sometimes you end up, what you're reading slightly infects the way you're writing. So if you're reading something with very long sentences that's very meandering, you sort of tend to write about it a bit like that. Whereas if you're reading, you know, Elmore Leonard, yeah. you do everything in four word sentences. The same way, I suppose, that you might adopt someone's verbal tics a little bit, maybe without even knowing. Absolutely. And I'm not sure if that's a danger. I notice it in my own reviews that my style changes with each book I discuss. But in high school, I also had a very clever thing I used to do. Before each final examination, I would read P.G. Woodhouse. Ah, <laughs> God, you, you you know the way to my heart, Irina. You really do. Did you write just really <laughs> funny so essays good. every At least time? I thought it was. <laughs> uh, and did that help, do you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it should be. I always tell my children, actually, read, if you read widely, then you'll be better at writing. And I suppose that must be true. I remember reviewing Truman Capote had a novel that came out. Uh, it was discovered about 10 years ago, one of his first novels. And I reviewed it for the TLS um, when I was reviewing uh, back in the day. And I remember uh, it was very long labyrinthine sentences. And I thought, that's quite odd. That's not really how he writes later. And I read his diaries. And he was in Paris, I think, at the time. And he was reading a lot of Henry James. Mm. And basically, Henry James had reached through time and it infected and, and infected his prose, and you could you could hear it in in the in the prose he was writing. I think what we, we're attached very much to the idea of the original genius, right? And when we sit down to do something creative, we often want to do something original, fresh, absolutely new. But in every art form, people learn by copying, yeah. right? This is this is just a standard thing you do. You um, you copy a painting. You sketch out a painting that someone else has um, has made. Um, you perform a composition that someone else has written. Uh, so I think it's quite normal that in writing as well, we would do a great deal of copying. I want to ask you a question, Irina, and you might not like me answer, uh, asking you this <laughs> question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Because you are that rare thing. You're an academic who writes beautifully. And one of the things I've found editing the TLS, we actually have, we have lots of people who do that at the TLS, but actually it's an ever-declining skill. And I guess my question is, particularly in academia, because what they do is they, people feel they have to trot out a load of verbiage, you know, lots of very dense terminology to show off how clever they are. And it seems to have infected, yeah, it seems to have affected academic prose particularly. And having someone who's as clever as an academic, but can also write intelligibly and in a fun and interesting way, seems to be a, a declining skill. Do you think good writing generally is valued less now, either in universities or more broadly? I think what academia trains is fear-based writing. Uh, it trains a kind of writing in which authors are constantly terrified of making an actual statement that could then be criticized. Mm. And so that fear just permeates the style and, and destroys it. <laughs> I also think there's a mistrust of, of legibility, of good writing, of style. Mm. Um, but fear, I think, is more important. It's the fact that our, our inner critics are so pumped up and so muscular that they swat down anything that sounds like a beauty or communication or authenticity <laughs> i think there is a bit also i don't know if you agree with this is a, there is some fear of simplicity it's quite difficult to present a very simple argument in simple terms and go from there to somewhere complex you have to be very confident and sure about what you're saying but why is that not valued in university because to me Irina, that, i totally agree with you lucy but yeah. if uh, universities are to mean anything then that's the bit they have to value because making the complex sim simple is one sign of intelligence. You're speaking to my heart, but I don't think most scholars see it that way. I think in general, people um, value complexity. And in a sense, okay, you go to school for four years, 10 years, so you stay in school forever. Um, maybe that feels like, like the way of proving the value of what you do is to make things sound so obscure that no one else can understand them. Yeah. I'm going to get in lots of trouble for this. <laughs> well, you can Sorry about me, that. You can blame me on this because it's kind of intellectual okay. virtue. It's intellectual virtue signaling, really, isn't it? It's sort but of I, saying, this is, uh, this is me being clever. But I don't think, I think, like, as Irina says, it's, it's, it's more based on fear that someone's going to point at you and say, you're not doing it right and you're wrong by making this rather 
large statement. And I think also your point, Stig, about is it a declining skill? I don't think it's a declining skill. It might not be found in the same places that it used to be found in. Maybe you're going to find it in the comments section of things or in blogs or... But universities, it seems to me, should stand up for this and say, if you're going to teach in my university or our university, your job is to attempt the beautiful and the relatable and the intelligible. No one is going to be impressed by a bunch of awful jargon that only makes sense to people very learned in the mystery. Okay, just to dig myself deeper, part of this is the German academic inheritance, right? It's the idea that what happens in the university is science. So where I teach, for example, my work is called Literaturwissenschaft, literature science. And science, of course, scientists know that science is beautiful, uh, but humanities scholars don't realize that. And they often feel they have to make things sound mechanical and turgid so that it will seem like science. Yeah. Uh, well, one of your many virtues, Irina, is you never write like that. Before we go, should we just, anyone, can we name anyone as a pure writer when you read the prose of someone that makes you think, God, that's good writing? It's a big question. Right now, I- I'm really in love with the prose of Virginia Woolf. Ah, yes. And she breaks all the rules. Lucy, a prose stylist that you admire. Off the top of my head, I mean, these are absolutely canonical. I would say George Eliot. And then I would say Hilary Mantel, partly because I've just been reading Hilary well, we'll Mantel. Yeah. But I really, I do mean it as well. I, I so think, this, do you know what I think? The, 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 the idea of style being embraced, we'll have to leave it here, Ian. That's an important thing, though, isn't it? That that's a, culturally we have to stand up for. And actually, this is true of the TLS. We sometimes flatten things a bit because we're a bit frightened of style because it's a bit daring. We have to stand up for style, don't we? Absolutely. Well, I think we'd all agree on that. There I was going to say, I was trying to think of who, who, are, who I really... Sorry, you should have asked. Sorry, well, no, who do you like, Stig? We know, know you like P.G. Woodhouse, but who I, else? God, I love P.G. Woodhouse. You do. The point about nothing happens in P.G. Woodhouse, so really the journey is everything. But the way he writes about you having breakfast yeah. is just completely joyous. Well, it's even it? little things like the way that... Uh, what's that phrase? Is it called catalepsis, where he would say, uh, I, I pronged a moody forkful of, uh, of bacon and eggs. <laughs> and just the way that moody in that sentence... I think it's a sense of play and joy and invent invention. Yeah. Well, listen, that's what we should stand up for. Irina Dimitrescu, what a great pleasure to talk to you. You may have noticed if you have heard or seen or read anything at all this week <laughs> exactly. that Hilary Mantel has a new book out. It's the concluding novel in her two Booker Prize winning trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. The Mirror and the Light is finally here, all 900 odd pages of it. And as Edmund Gordon says in his review for us, both of the previous volumes were structured around Cromwell's own attempts to bring down a queen, Catherine of Aragon in Wolf Hall and Boleyn in Bring Up the Bodies. The Mirror and the Light picks up almost to the minute where the second book leaves off, just after Anne Boleyn's execution. The clean-up operation, literal and metaphorical, has just begun, and Edmund joins us in the studio today to talk it through page by page. <laughs> I'm actually just kidding, but I wish we were doing that. Many thanks for coming in, Thank Edmund. you for having me. Um, so you called the whole thing in your review, you call it some of the most complex and immersive fiction to have come along in years, and immersive seems like a very good word for it because you you do feel as though when you finish you you kind of emerge blinking into you know the other world how do you think Hilary Mantel does it and is it anything to do with her famous present tense do you think I mean I'm sure it's something to do with the present tense and that that's the uh, that's the manner in which the whole world is transmitted to us I think there's probably no simple answer to that question in that um, you know she spent well over 10 years producing these novels and if there was a sort of easy route to saying how she pulls off the trick then uh, then we'd all be at it. I think one thing is the perspective that we are so inside Cromwell's head uh, looking through his eyes throughout and another is just the absolute texture of the research of the historical detail which is I mean, I'm not a historian, but um, seems to me completely free from anachronism. We seem to be absolutely there in the 16th century, thinking in a 16th century mode. And the confidence with which, I mean, it seems to me that the confidence with which you would do that, how she manages that, because it's so utterly convinced and therefore convincing, there doesn't seem to be any doubt in, in the text. It's kind of, 
and maybe this is through the present tense but here it is this is the world mm. it's right it's how it was and you've got to get into it I think it's mm. also partly another thing you said in your piece about you say that Cromwell he's partly sort of irresistible because he's just so much cleverer than everybody yes. else and because he's so clever and he's been to all these places and he's done all these things when he says you know his the coat of his cloth is worth four shillings a yard or mm. this is where you get alum from and you need it for the dyeing process you just go okay because yeah. this is the cleverest person I've ever come across. Yeah. And that's... Is that a fault, though? Because some people say she's idealised Cromwell too much. Well, I think it would be a fault if he didn't have uh, some slightly ugly sides to his personality as well. Because he is, I mean, so much cleverer than anyone else. And so sort of omnicompetent, so talented. He can do everything from ironwork to he understands the price of um, textiles. He speaks various different languages. Um, he can handle himself. He can handle himself, yeah. He looks like a murderer and indeed <laughs> can conduct himself like one. Um, and arguably is. Arguably <laughs> is, yes. In fact, yeah, I mean, definitely is. Um, I mean, I think there are some pretty unpleasant sides to his personality. So he's not just a sort of superhero character. He's um, There's an interesting tension within his nature which prevents him from becoming just a plaster saint. Does that come out more in this book? Is it, it seems from... I've not read this book apart from the last two pages. But it felt, it felt from your review that... He's become world-weary uh, in, yes. in the sort of whatever he was in the first two, it's starting to crumble a bit because age is getting to him, age is getting to Henry. Yeah. And the combination of those two things means, does this make it a darker, gloomier book, do you think? It makes it a more moving book. I didn't find either of the previous volumes moving. I mean, I found them sort of compulsive and intelligent and all the rest of it. Um, whereas this one, there are some very, uh, you know, emotionally powerful scenes in it. Um, I'm not sure it makes him a more, um, less of a sort of likeable character. He He's a more vulnerable character during it. And you do see him sort of, both his powers failing, his judgments are more often the wrong judgments in this book than they have been in the previous books. In the previous books, he tends to set out to do something and he'll just do it. And it's a, a series of very cunning um, tactics that he'll use to achieve his ends. Whereas in this case, he miscalculates uh, on several occasions. But he's also sort of racked by his conscience in this book. He's haunted by by the ghosts, more or less literally, the ghosts of the people who he's had put to death in the previous books, as well as by his own failures and compromises throughout. We mentioned the ending, and it's a good point that we know how this ends. Mm. And we didn't necessarily know. Reading Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, you don't quite know when they're going to stop. You might not know precisely what happens after Anne Boleyn dies. You might not quite know, how, you know the machinations around Jane Seymour. Unless you're a student of the period, you'll know some names, but not very much more. But we know how this ends. Mm. Does that does she answer that challenge of making someone read for 900 pages when the conclusion is known from the beginning? I mean, she certainly does. Um, I suppose you're, you're not reading to find out what happens in any thrillerish sense. Um, you are reading to see how it, how Cromwell deals with it. You're reading to see what in his personality allows it to happen in Mantell's interpretation, because uh, certainly it seems the Cromwell of Wolf Hall, you feel is utterly invulnerable, that nothing could bring him down. And yeah. so the question of what it is in him that allows him to make these missteps and fall out of favour with the king is an interesting one. And there's, there's more in it, isn't there? There's a lot more about him and Henry Mm. the two of them, that relationship, that dyad or whatever, there, there are quite a few points at which he either thinks it's just me and him or someone points out that all he's got is Henry and part mm. of his problem of being of vile blood, as, the, yeah. <laughs> as all the Aristos like to say, is that he hasn't got his family to fall back on or his stately home that he no. can retire to yeah. and that's and, that, and that's in one of the scenes where where they get where you get the title from isn't it that that Henry is his kind of son and as soon as he falls out of favor and Henry is increasingly erratic in it and do you yeah. think their relationship sort of comes to fruition almost in this one well it sort of goes past fruition it's yes. going going bad in this one um it's i mean certainly that is one of the aspects of the of the construction of the book that creates drama and creates tension and creates propulsion. I think that, as you say, Henry is more and more erratic and Cromwell begins to realise that as soon as he's out of favour with Henry, that's it, and everybody else is out to get him. It becomes very clear that there is an enormous number of characters baying for his blood, wanting to bring him down, and all that he has is Henry's favour to 
keep him going. But Henry's the monster he's helped to create. That's yes. the other thing that he has to sort of bear culpability over the three books. Yes. That, yeah. that although Henry's obviously an all-powerful king, he's also the figure that Cromwell has moulded. So mm. if Henry is his, his mirror, it works the other way. Absolutely. I'm struck by the, the writing. So we always try and work out why is it so... Mm. What's so good about it? And you you quote this incidentally in, um, uh, in your piece, but it's talking about Henry. The king is in fancy dress as a Turk, his big pink feet in their velvet slippers like pigs walking to market. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I was trying to work out why that's so brilliant. And what occurs to me when I'm, because I'm rereading Bring Up the Bodies in preparation for reading, if I, you know, now I've read the end, but I'm going to read the whole of the, the, the third one. She almost throws that off. The book seems to be so littered with these sort of perfect similes, mm. these sort of cast off fragments of brilliance mm. that uh, every page is loaded with them. Well, that- it's incredibly vibrant and colourful, the writing, and the sensual detail is extraordinary. But, I mean, that that particular um, line that you've just quoted is, a, is an interesting one because it almost shouldn't work. I mean, as a an image, how can the feet themselves be like pigs walking? I mean, they are the implements for walking but I think that creates a kind of bathos that gives it its comic energy because it's a very comic line that as at that moment Henry's worrying that he's married a fool and in fact is dressed up like a complete fool himself it's a a really funny but the idea also that you know that's when I think of late Henry you think of a swollen pink pig Mm. a big and so the (laughs) idea of pigs walking to market uh, and then these feet absurdly swollen but and there is actually then you say this in the piece as well that there is there's a lot of humor there's a lot of actual jokes there's a big actual joke with a punchline just Mm. about with Jane Seymour when she's talking about the yes. wedding night it's almost you know ba-boom but especially like that joke with Henry you kind of think oh god he's so ridiculous and then you think except you can't betray even a flicker of that mm. well Henry's a dictator he's I mean, so dangerous Henry is I mean that's the other thing that struck me rereading Bring Up the Bodies there's moments where it's a kind of buddy movie because mm. it's kind of Thomas and Henry together and mm. he sort of says oh you might be from the wrong side of the tracks but I like you and I'm going to look after you it's a bit gangstery mm-hmm. uh, in that respect, but Henry is a vile dictator, yeah, uh, and you never quite lose that. And this sort of thr- you say it's not a thriller, which it isn't, because there's no you know, we know how it ends. But it seems to me that the triumph, maybe in the end, might be the thrillerishness of it. That it's stylishly written. It's written almost in that way that I would associate with sort of American noir fiction. Mm. You know, the present tense, the very punchy imagery, mm. and yet it's in the more genteel genre of the historical fiction. And maybe that's the tension where the greatness comes. Quite possibly. I mean, certainly it does have that element of sort of gangster fiction. There's this, the murky morality, the constant threat of violence, mm. the um, everything depending on the fortunes of a few individuals, people, you know, you know that the person who's closest to you is the one who'll betray you in the end. I um, mean, it's also like Westerns, I suppose, in that yeah. in that respect. But it's maybe embracing the, the vibrancy of genre writing. And historical fiction is a sort of genre, genre in, mm. in the sense of its plot is, is everything and the immersiveness is everything. And the fact that she's not... I mean, these do rattle along. The mm. first two do. They do. This one, I mean, I don't know if you agree, but this one, it, it has more... Like you said, he he reflects, and there are more of those things. So you're at you're either sort of in Cromwell's head, or you know just next to him, as it were. But I felt that in this one there were more um, sort of panoramic things where she pulls back and she looks at the whole of England, or she looks at she looks at it as a like a palimpsest of history, or history and religion. And there are I felt that there were more of of those scenes where she draws back a little bit. Possibly. I mean, there's a huge amount of sort of national political history mm. happening in the book. There's the um, pilgrimage. Uh, the pilgrimage of the grace. The pilgrimage the of the grace. grace. Yeah. There's um, the dissolution of the monasteries. There's all of this stuff happening. And Cromwell isn't present at it, but he's sort of hearing about it. He's involved with responding to it or orchestrating it. I felt that we were very close to his perspective throughout. I didn't feel that there was that kind of pulling out of the camera as such. Just for little scenes every now and again, but mm-hmm. some, sometimes it's him reflecting. Maybe it's that mm. he is thinking in a wider way. Mm-hmm. Well, he's got to that point in his career where he is looking back, as you say, and the ghosts yeah. are haunting him. Mm. Edmund, is it too long? It's 900 pages, and some of the knocks of it, which have not been very many, the Sunday Times almost alone has decided to, to, to knock this, as it has knocked the previous two. Um, but most people haven't. Most people would say this is a great book and I get the feeling mm. from your review you feel it is a great book yes. 
Would it have been a greater book at 600 pages? I think not. I think it was, I mean, I, I would have enjoyed it had there been another 500 pages. <laughs> yeah, and I'd too. point out that the Sunday Times not the first one for being too long. So I think if people enjoyed the first one, wanted to read a second, there's no reason why they would find this one too long. But is there a slowing of pace? And does that matter? There is a slowing of, of propulsion, I think, perhaps. And that's because of, as Lucy mentioned at the beginning, because there is no sort of active dynamic task for Cromwell to yeah. engage in throughout this book. But then there's an upsurge of other things like humour, which more than makes up for it. So it does have a different feel to it. There's no set piece. You make the point that Amber Lynn gets executed yeah. in the first one. Is it the is it Catherine going in the second one that's the sort of the equivalent set piece but there isn't a set piece in this one yeah no there is not a big kind of s cinematic sequence like that it might translate less well to screen and indeed would have to be considerably squeezed down reduced to to be on screen in a mini series but uh, as as a novel i thought it was just terrific i mean i you know spending a week lying on the sofa and reading this and calling it work has been a, an uh, absolute delight i agree it was that's just what martin amos said about um, elmore leonard he, he, said, he said reading Elmore Leonard and calling it work right. um, <laughs> uh, is a joy uh, so it's worth the hype because and arguably I, mean, I don't know how invidious a comparison this is if you look at how Margaret Atwood was published mm -hmm. last year stupid uh, really uh, overhyped stupid the way that the embargoes worked it became this sort of weird meta event as well as a, a book itself mm. it feels this one has just been put out there reviews have been given plenty of time to do it uh, it's been there there's been a bit of a social media embargo but it's it's been fairly relaxed as if here is a great book mm -hmm. and you're going to like it do you feel there's a sort of this, if you compare the two you know big sequels by big female authors that are the most anticipated book of the year this feels like it's landed better it may just be a better book as well uh, I mean well I'm probably not the person to ask about this because I'm not an Atwood fan at all but um, I mean I think that the, there hasn't been the same kind of publicity hijinks around this um, and I guess that they are confident in the material because it is a, a terrific novel. I think it's that thing of when you open it and you you know you get two sentences in and you just think great there's mm. loads to go and it's and Is there a greater pleasure than a very world. long book that's good? Well is there a greater trial than a very long book that's bad yeah. <laughs> you, just, you just don't know when <laughs> to you're... put it a more negative yeah. way but I'm always when you, you know when you, when you get a big doorstopper yeah. and the first 50 pages are great and you think it's just mm. this terrific. is me for two weeks yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that's yeah. what I mean about you're at the immersiveness but towards the end of it because I had to read it quite quickly I started feeling a bit paranoid and I'd be like, oh, what are we going to do about the Howards? You know, and just like, and you kind of think, oh, there are lots of, there's lots of things going on that you have to deal with because mm. you've been in his head mm. so long. It's also very flattering because you think, yeah, I can, you know, I'm incredibly intelligent. I, I know all about weaving and <laughs> war and all of that kind of weaving thing. Weaving and it's war. Very, all of it, all yeah. Of, uh, but worth the hype. Absolutely worth the hope. Uh, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much, Edmund Gordon. And our thanks also go to Irina Dimitrescu and Muriel Zaga. My thanks go to Lucy Dallas. Back next week. Back next week, Hooray. if you have me. Well, of course. Make sure you're subscribing, not you, Lucy, although I would like you to read the paper occasionally. You want me to pay for a subscription? <laughs> Everything helps. Uh, but make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. This week is the bumper 48-page Spring Books issue and also includes Will Self on the issue of plagiarising your own words, the art of the sports autobiography and what we can can learn from Theresa May. Next week, as the world shrinks around us, we'll be expansively looking at European literature. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.